they had to listen because of all the images on television and everything else about who was affected by Katrina. This is Blair Durham with Black Wall Street Today, your media hub for all things black entrepreneurship, politics, news, and events in Hampton Roads and beyond. When I say black, y'all say Wall Street. Black. Wall Street. Black Wall Street. When I say black, y'all say Wall Street. Black. Black. Greetings, greetings. I want to welcome you to this edition of Black Wall Street Today. I am your host, Blair Durham, and I get really excited about doing this work. I had one listener phone into the station to get information on one of our real estate investors from last week, and she made it a point to say to continue doing the work of Empowerment Talk Radio and that the information being provided is insightful and relevant and that she is a faithful listener. So shout out to you. Thank you so much. I want to encourage listeners to follow us on social media at Black Wall Street Today on Facebook and Instagram. Please, please visit our website at www.blackwallstreet.today and submit your information if you're interested in being featured on our platform. We are always looking for guests that can speak to various industries. For example, the technology industry. Uh, We're definitely interested in robotics and STEM technologies. We're interested in having makers on the show. Uh, We want to hear your story no matter where it is that you reside. So again, visit our website at www.blackwallstreet.today and submit your information. One of the most significant yet difficult to access opportunities for Black business owners is federal government procurement, the opportunity to sell products and services directly to the government. Uh, Although state and federal government programs, including SWAM, DBE, and HUBZone certifications aim to improve access to government contracts, our community still struggles to access the billions of dollars awarded on an annual basis to small business owners across the country. I recently heard it said that as black business owners, we are provided a laundry list of hurdles to jump through, including classes to take, uh, networking opportunities, uh, gaining certification, signing up for emails, and completing really lengthy applications. Yet we typically lose to white women who are considered amongst the same minority population and thus are in fact our, our competition. The recent Virginia Beach, Virginia disparity study is a testament to these and other statistics surrounding the lack of equity and access to government contracts. I want to introduce our first guest at this time to help us better understand the landscape at the federal level. And I'm going to do something that I normally don't do. I'm going to actually read this gentleman's bio in its entirety because I believe it's significant. Uh, Mr. Charles H. DeBeau is the Vice President of Programs and Business Development for the National Black Chamber of Commerce. Um, Over the last 17 years, he's gained extensive experience as the liaison to the NBCC Global Federation of Chambers in North, Central, and South America, as well as the Caribbean, Europe, and Africa. The NBCC has evolved as a global advocate on behalf of black businesses. The National Black Chamber of Commerce is dedicated to economically empowering sustaining African-American communities through entrepreneurship, capitalistic activity within the United States, and via interaction with the Black diaspora. Mr. DeBow has focused work on the unconventional challenges confronting African-American small businesses, its advocacy and opportunities, along with the operational challenges of nonprofit organizations in particular. His responsibilities include concept, implementation, administration, and management of the organization's programs. He also directs policies, initiatives, advocacy for public policy concerns, and represents the NBCC periodically on congressional subcommittees. 
currently serving as the co-chairman of Economic Opportunity of the United States Department's U.S.-Columbia Action Plan on Racial and Ethnic Equality, which is a program conceived to provide solutions for conflict resolution for the Colombian Civil War. Mr. DeBow is the son of one of the original Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, he is a graduate of Indiana University. He spent over 13 years in various capacities with CBS Records and 10 years as a marketing consultant, developing campaigns for clients such as Michael Jackson, Prince, Janet Jackson, Sade, Earth, Wind & Fire, Pink Floyd, Bruce Springsteen, uh, Luther Vandross, Teddy Pendergrass, and many more. Today, the NBCC is striving for entrepreneurial diversity with infrastructure development, ITC, housing, energy, agribusiness, cannabis, manufacturing, and natural resources with emphasis on socially responsive and inclusive practices. Mr. DeBow is presently overseeing project developments in Colombia, Cuba, Suriname, Jamaica, Ghana, Botswana, as well as Kenya. Mr. DeBow, are you there? I am. Well, Thank welcome to the call. Me. Thank you so much for being here. It's an honor and a pleasure, and we have such respect for uh, the Hampton University and the Tidewater community. Fantastic. It's, it's good to have you on, and thanks again, uh, thanks again for being here. Please talk a little bit about how you and your family got into this particular work, Chuck. This is a, uh, a real, it's, it really was a natural uh, evolution. Um, the chamber was actually, is actually founded by my sister and her husband, and uh, they had been active in a political campaign for uh, then uh, the campaign for the governor of Indiana, which was uh, Evan Bayh at the time, and uh, as a result of his winning the election, uh, they were looking to fill certain spots and. The, the administration, uh, and one of those uh, had to do with minority business uh, contracting for the state, and it was a procurement type of position. Uh, in that position, uh, the the goal of it was to increase the amount of uh, black businesses that were actually doing business with the state, very similar to what you were mentioning in your um Entry on your in your entree about the uh, ability for businesses to do business with the government. In this case, it was on the state level, and uh, as a result of uh, Harry Harry Alfred, his uh, efforts to dig in and and be working directly for the governor, he had access to not only the databases but the decision makers. And they they got into they got into some things and it upset the status quo. The people that had been usually getting these contracts 100% were now being challenged. And uh, after a while, I think he had raised the numbers from something like uh, less than 10% to over. 16 to 26 percent somewhere around in that range and we're talking about like one person 1.6 to six percent and in a state that pretty much had historically been doing what they do like behind the scenes and then kind of telling people life's okay life is good and so there were businesses themselves the owners saying 
well, it's not okay. Things aren't going well. Right. And they got into it and dug it. In the beginning, uh, and partially there's a, uh, a somewhat of a naive type of uh, element to a new uh, administrator, such as the governor, coming in and changing things. And they didn't realize what Harry was doing until... There was almost like a mutiny of uh, top supporters. People were saying, "Hey, you're taking, you're killing my business. You're taking." And in this case, we're talking less than two percent, three percent, five percent of what these these majority-owned businesses had enjoyed uh, for many years. We're now being forced to recognize guidelines and comply with guidelines and and we use that word guidelines you're going to hear that a lot because it's not law it's not written into law you don't have to give these contracts or a percentage of or even subcontract and in many cases it says that's what you're supposed to do but it's not a law per se so make a longer story shorter the uh eventually I mean, it was it, Harry. We'll have to get Harry on here one day to tell you the, the details of it. But he was threatened. He was uh, his kids were followed home from school. All kinds of stuff was going on. Getting pulled over, driving down the street, and all this was political pressure being put back on. And he was even asked by the governor to slow down. Uh, you're upset. You're rocking the boat, and uh, stop putting all these businesses in these contracts and uh and he was saying well that's my job that's what i'm supposed to do that's what you hired me to do well eventually he, re- he resigned he quit that job and uh they were looking around saying you know what we're missing here uh, we're missing the education training development element for businesses to understand the game you know there's there's one thing about filling out forms uh, getting certifications, but that's all that is to get you in the game. You can you can suit up and you can go and you can compete, but then what happens? So uh, they he and his wife Kay decided to form what was then called the uh, Hoosier Black Chamber in the state of Indiana. And after forming that and, and getting that up and going, they wanted to reach beyond the borders of the state. And it was ultimately decided to move to Washington, D.C. and found the National Black Chamber of Commerce, which was uh, March of 1993. And I'll interrupt and, you there uh, just for a quick second, Chuck. This is Black Wall Street Today. I'm your host, Blair Durham. We're talking with Chuck DeBow, who is the vice president of the National Black Chamber of Commerce. We're having a conversation about government contracting. Go ahead, Chuck. Yeah, and so the National Black Chamber of Commerce was formed in March of 1993. It's a uh, 501c3 uh, nonprofit, nonpartisan, nonsectarian organization that's dedicated to the economic empowerment of African-American communities uh, throughout the nation and uh, as well as the diaspora. Uh, The the one thing I want to add to that is that even though we're named and known as the National Black Chamber of Commerce, in the uh, last 10 years, and it's probably started even before that a little bit, around 2003, that we started receiving invitations from foreign governments uh, and wanting to replicate business models of, of how the United States was 
using uh, a vertical model for uh, economic empowerment by including, uh, in, in some cases, microenterprise or small business in the whole economic uh, structure. Whereas in many other countries, it's only in a lot of the, what used to be called the third world is now the emerging economies. They're opening up and figuring out that you got to include your people, not just let the Chinese or some foreign uh, entity come in and say, hey, give us this uh, opportunity. We'll give you this money and we'll do this, that, and the other for you. But we're going to bring our own people, our own materials and do it our way. And then when it's all said and done, you get maybe a road or an energy plant or something, but the added value and the economic impact on your on your community, on your country, on your people is far less. So we've been delving, and that's my, my area that I've been um, uh, kind of shepherding, is the global market uh, evolution uh, from that aspect. That's fantastic. So I heard you allude to the fact that Harry was receiving some, some physical threats as he was getting kind of good at doing this work. And I, I also have read that in, in one, one press release, you all say that the numbers were as high as 30% in terms of minority contracting under George Bush's administration. Tell me, what accounted for that rise, right? And then what has changed since then? Because the numbers have declined significantly, right? Yes. Um, I think the big turning point under uh, George Bush, and, and, and let me take a, uh, a step back from another perspective here. We as individuals are of a mindset, and, and technically we're independent. We're neither necessarily Democratic nor Republican. Uh, and as you advocate on behalf of a cause, of a, of a disposition of, a, of an entrepreneur, particularly a, a black entrepreneur, different administrations, regardless of whether they're red or blue or independent or whatever, they, they have different approaches and different policies. And we really had initially felt that it's very possible that George Bush could have been one of the worst presidents. And this was at the time and coming out of the Clinton administration and what we had started to realize different successes within the other challenges. So you get certain things that a president, that an administration does that aren't helpful. And then they kind of like, I hate to use this phrase, but throw you a bone. They give you a little something over here, yeah. but there's the institutional challenge or problems or systematic, uh, uh, the systemic problems that continue uh, on and on and on through the decades. And it's, it has uh, a, it has a um, approach where do they want to dig in and stir that up or not? So mm -hmm. to kind of you know they they have a phrase called kicking the can down the road. Well, they'll do a little something to calm some people down and whatever. Well, the big thing that happened under George Bush was Katrina. When ah. Katrina when Katrina hit, particularly like that Ninth Ward down there in New Orleans, there are and, and you probably have something similar in your area as well, and I think some of the uh, disaster relief. But FEMA has a standing contract with maybe 10 huge companies. And when a disaster hits, they don't have to 
talk to anybody. They don't have to wait. They don't. They just come in and start going to work. They're already under contract, and it was designed to be set up for the uh, reaction time to be immediate. And so there were many, almost all the local businesses. And the best example was um, in the mortuary sciences area. So there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of people that died and lost their lives in Katrina, and many of them were black, and they lived in the uh, Ninth Ward, the, the uh, disenfranchised, the poor area. You know, it was the hood, and many families had a funeral home or were connected to a church and that church was connected to a funeral home where they wanted to be able to say, you know, can you take care of the body? Well, through FEMA, and this was under a, uh, a company that people probably heard of called Halliburton, uh, that had, which, which, which is another nemesis to, to black business in, in, in many cases, is a, a bundled contract. So they had the contract to do a lot of different types of services, but one of the types of things that they kind of fell under their area of, of, of responsibility was mortuary, uh, mortuary services. So they had subcontracted to a company from Brazil that you couldn't go in and get your you couldn't get your family out body-wise and deal with it and get them buried for having to go through some company from Brazil and and, and it was outrageous. There were uh, we had we had a company that called us up and told us that it and it was a, a black man, an African American man, and you know we really didn't want to kind of believe it. He said he owned a concrete company, mm-hmm. and that FEMA had come in and used bolt cutters, cut open his uh, inventory, an inventory in this in this case is gravel and sand and things you use to make concrete with, and they just took it. And when you saw on TV these huge uh, bags that were dropping from helicopters trying to, uh, to to stop the overflow of the uh, the jetties, the uh, retaining walls that were the cana- the canals were built on, the actual land is below sea level. So they had built up uh, the walls, and that's the name slips my mind. It'll come back of what they're actually called. But they are to protect the canals of water from uh, coming over the sides and, and flooding these areas. Well, uh, Katrina was so heavy that it washed out these these uh, walls of these these hills, like they were made of uh, soil on the sides of the canal, and so they were trying to catch them up. So they took took his product, and I believe at the time it was over six hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of inventory. And he was calling us up and said, "Listen, they're not going to pay me. They're just taking it and they're claiming it, and nobody's doing anything. Nobody." And we said, "What?" So basically, what happened was uh, Harry had wrote some articles, and uh, there was a gentleman that worked for President Bush named Carl Rove. Carl Rove was very intelligent uh, and astute, and he would pick up on social media, news items. Social media back then wasn't anywhere near like it is now. But they picked up on it and they said, Harry, listen, come on in for a meeting and tell us what's going on. And surprisingly, they didn't really know 
the uh, on-the-ground incidents of what was really going on. And so Harry came in and said, listen, you've got to do something about this. This is outrageous, and we can't support it. We won't, you know, he, he was, we were really jumping up and down on their desk and rattling and raising cane. And it was a time where they had to listen because of all the images on television and everything else about who was affected by Katrina and what were they doing to these people. And the the images of uh, all these people living in the Superdome and the people trying to cross the bridge. And it was just a, a really challenging time on how do you govern all your people, not just some of your people. How do you take care of folks? So essentially, he said, Harry, give us two weeks and then go back to, uh, there, these were the huge construction companies primarily. There was Halliburton, there was uh, Shaw Bechtel, there were a couple other huge uh, household name type construction companies. And he said, give me two weeks and you go call them up. Well, uh, ultimately, when we called them back in two weeks, they said, listen, what do you need? What do you want? Here's what we got. So ultimately, there ended up being something like $6 billion worth of uh, contracts that went to black businesses as a result of that. And uh, that was a clear indication of us of the implement and the compliance, if you will, with guidelines or whatever. In this case, it was a little bit more emergency, so it had a little less to do with guidelines, but it had everything to do with it when you're at zero and you go from zero to maybe 1.6% or 2%, where the guidelines say you're supposed to be up maybe around 8, 9, 10, or 12%. Right. And so I got after you, that... Let me, yeah, let me okay. cut you for one moment. We're going to actually take a quick break. We'll be back with Chuck DeVoe, Vice President of the National Black Chamber of Commerce. And we'll talk with one Hampton University alum who's developed a national platform for stock education. We are here with Chuck DeVoe, the Vice President of the National Black Chamber of Commerce, having a conversation about federal government contracting. Chuck, you still there with us? Yes, I am. Awesome, awesome. Thanks so much for everything you've shared thus far. I've got a question for you. I understand that the National Black Chamber has an initiative underway, something called Project Phoenix, um, that is supposed to impact equity with regard to government contracting. Can you talk to us about that initiative and how that is actually working? We've been looking at really a, a, our, our constituencies uh, on one hand, which in, in the case of the chamber is, is a reference, really initially started out for those businesses that were trying to do business with the government. And so traditionally, those businesses are a little bit more organized and sophisticated as the paperwork and the types of uh, 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 auditing type activity that goes on to make sure that uh, you are who you are. And it's quite different from self-certification as you get in many state uh, situations where we're often looking at 8A certification with the uh, SBA. And it's, it's quite detailed. So the issue that came about was that there are a number of companies, a good number, that, uh, and, and I believe it's over 5,000, something like 5,600, that uh, are actually certified as uh, 8A businesses, but less than a handful. I mean, really, 
obscene bad numbers are uh, actually getting contracts. And so uh, your gut reaction is to charge the hill and go after uh, the government and say, you know, this is terrible. What's wrong? But when you drill down into it and get into exactly what has happened and why and and really get to the nuts and bolts of it, often you find out that there's a lot of uh, texts that are called, you know, and, and I say that uh, as a cliche, where little things like a uh, letter was off on their email address, on their uh application or on their on the record you know you register into the database and if there's something that's not exactly right or a uh, you don't have your full uh, capability statement or statement of qualifications or you have not uh, filed a uh, tax statement or any of these kinds of little things or you owe the government something or something like that. There's all these reasons as to why you're immediately kicked out of consideration. Then there is a whole other part. So let's call that the technical aspect. Yeah. You know, is your paperwork in and, order? And, and just to be clear, it sounds like you're saying that perhaps we're just more likely to make those kinds of mistakes. And that's well, why there's the, the disparity that exists. Yes, or? But it's not. It's not. Uh, it's not ethnically systemic. Okay. okay. Anybody and everybody. And so you've got some huge corporations that maybe have a whole department that just works on this stuff. They got lawyers assigned to it, accountants assigned to it. Um, there is a, a large defense contractor that uh, we know from working with, they got six people that are going to these contracting officers with the government and hitting it from, you know, six different angles. Okay. You know, but these are these are companies. So that we may not be staffed dollars. well enough to take advantage of these kinds of opportunities then. Well, let's not let's not say it exactly like staffed well enough, but it's kind of like, well, what do you have to work with in comparison? And so Few in resources. this case, right? Yeah, okay. it, it, right. And, you know, and how do you do it? So some one of the approaches was, well, we're going to hire this attorney, and this attorney is well, these attorneys might charge them. I've heard anything from five thousand dollars to thirty thousand dollars to get their quote-unquote paperwork proper, and in many cases, let's say seventy percent of it or something. Okay, so the paperwork's done right now. What? Well, you get your membership card and you get to come in and compete. Then what happens? Then you get in there and you find that there is a um, this these these other companies. Uh, in many cases, they're made to look like they're uh, parallel to you and you had mentioned it in the beginning about like uh, when um, oh this was a good one when the uh, there was a law a bill that was passed under President Clinton that had to do with uh, China uh, and I forgot exactly what it was but what they do is in the buried in the thousands of pages relating to the bill against China, there'll be something in there that says now white women can officially be recognized as minorities. Right. And so suddenly, out of nowhere, you had all these businesses that were quote unquote minority businesses by a, a white woman, but the woman hadn't really been in business. 
Mm-hmm. But what happened was these were... But had access companies. to greater resources to be able to obviously access well, the contracts. I'll be blunt. They were front. Mm-hmm. They were fronts. They were really mm-hmm. the same old people who had put their wife in a company. Uh, and, and, and the other one happens too, and this is nothing new. And uh, if you have any uh, AD concrete, let's say about the Alaskan Native Corporations. They are 8A in perpetuity, meaning forever. Chuck, let me stop you there because we're getting short on time and I I need to ask you this question, right? So what advice do you give to those kind of just starting out in this government contracting space? They've got a great company and now they're ready to sort of enter the big leagues. What does the NBCC offer that can help by way of mentorship resources? How How do you walk someone through this process? We don't really mess around. We put you right with experts okay. that can tell you and that can go right in the database and we can pull up. If you got a company now, it's an 8A company, we can pull it up and look and see what, what most likely why you're not getting any contracts. So and that's huge. Often, the first step is go ahead and get the 8A certification and then come to you, you're saying. Yes. Yes, however, it doesn't always happen that way. There's a whole lot of people getting work that aren't 8A. Okay. And part and part of it is you've got, you, you know, we used to frown on brokers. People, like, let, let me give you an example. Here's a, here's a, uh, is a, is a black business. He was out of uh, somewhere further out in the Midwest, like Kansas or Oklahoma, somewhere like that. And he... He was, he was a TV guy. That was the name of his business, something like Mike the TV guy. And he found a opportunity to sell like, I don't know, five or six big screens. It was maybe three or $5,000 uh, contract to sell some flat screen TVs to a military base or something like that. And because it was so small, they didn't have to go through a big... Uh, uh, process on RFPs and all that kind of mm-hmm, stuff. This mm-hmm. is what they call whole source. So to make a long story short, he figured out, he learned the system because he, I, I, you could say he got a break, but it wasn't a whole lot of people compete for something that small. Well, yeah. this guy learned the system. He turned around, found out they needed some motor oil. So he gets on eBay or something like that and turns around and, uh, and they say, well, how much do you want to pay for it? And the contracting officer says, well, we know Mike, the TV guy, and we he's in our books. We don't have to go through the setting process. We don't have to do all that. He and can he sell us the oil. I love it. Yeah, he got the deal. And so he next deal, I think, was maybe 15000 Then he found something else they needed that was maybe 100000 Then he did another one or two wow. or three more, and the guys ended up doing over $5 million. Chuck, and we absolutely did. have to have you on this show on a monthly basis. You are just a tremendous resource. <laughs> we need to know where the opportunities are. That's really the question well, that people are asking. And, you know, they'd like to be able to have their hand held a little bit to get to that money. So I want to thank you so much for, for, for being a guest. And, you know, you're always welcome to come back. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me and uh, look forward to it. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Chuck. It's time for hashtag add this to the list. Powered by Hair by Aisha for all your hair care and styling needs, 757-816-6297. That is Hair by Aisha. Today, we're adding an incredible resource to the list that will assist in entrepreneurship through a better understanding of the stock market. 
I want to share this gentleman's bio. He is a Hampton University alum. Mr. J.R. Fenwick is the founder and CEO of FlipThatStock.com and HoldThatStock.com, education and technology companies that specialize in teaching people how the stock market works and how to make money flipping and holding stocks using the latest technology. As I mentioned, he is a graduate of Hampton University with a degree in nursing slash pre-med at the urging of his father, a doctor, and his mother, a nurse. After he graduated, he went on to work in a hospital as an RN for one year, not really wanting to go to medical school. He entered corporate America, taking on various positions in sales and marketing in the pharmaceutical, medical equipment, and diagnostic industries. However, his true passion was being an entrepreneur. While at his corporate job, Fenwick began teaching each of his passions, including recording and producing music, martial arts, coaching, and marketing, and turning it, turning them into profitable little businesses that combined surpassed his six-figure corporate salary, and he quit his $100,000 a year job. He went on to write the award-winning book, How I Quit My $100,000 a Year Job, to inspire, motivate, and educate others on how to turn their passions into profits. He even launched a TV show called The Kick Your Boss to the Curb Show. He became a featured speaker at many entrepreneur conferences on the topic of turning your passions into profits. Little did Fenwick know that after purchasing a piece of music equipment for his recording studio from a stranger who later became one of his best friends, that he would develop his biggest passion of all, the stock market. His new friend encouraged him to learn how the stock market works and how to actively find, research, analyze, and buy and sell stocks. Fenwick began learning about the stock market from his friend and taking stock market courses and even hiring a personal coach to accelerate his learning. He started investing or holding stocks and then began trading or flipping stocks. He developed a talent and a skill for flipping stocks. He began telling his friends about how the stock market works and they began asking him to teach them. They also began telling others about him and soon Fenwick was getting requests from all across the country to teach how the stock market works and how to flip stocks. That's when Fenwick actually started FlipThatStock.com. Since starting FlipThatStock.com, Fenwick has been featured on numerous radio shows, giving him insights on the stock market. He's also the featured speaker on the stock market and how to build a successful business at numerous conferences across the country. He recently started Hold That Stock for those interested in learning a fun and easy way to invest in the stock market from their Android and iPhones. His new book, How I Quit My Job and Built a Million Dollar Company, is scheduled for release later this year. Outside of work, JR enjoys spending time with his family, working out, studying and teaching martial arts and writing, recording and producing music and playing guitar. And now we've got Mr. J.R. Fenwick on the line. Mr. Fenwick, are you there? I am. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Welcome to the call. All right, thank you. Glad to be on board. Thanks so much for being here. So I've, I've shared your bio with our listeners already. If you could just talk a little bit sort of about your background and how it is that you ended up becoming involved in the stock market, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. So uh, I, I grew up in Ohio and um, uh, from, you know, I kind of have an interesting background uh, because my father was a doctor, my mother was a nurse. And so the game plan was for me to go on to become a physician or a dentist. And I went on and I attended Hampton University. And uh, so down, in, you know, uh, it holds a special place in my heart uh, <laughs> down in the Tidewater area. 
So I graduated from Hampton University with a unique degree, a nursing pre-med degree. Uh, and after graduating, I went on to work in a hospital. And while working there, I decided, you know, it really wasn't my passion or desire to go and become a, uh, a doctor or a dentist. Um, my true passion was uh, I wanted to be a professional musician, a guitarist. I've been playing uh, guitar since I was age seven. And uh, so I worked at the hospital. Uh, I left. And when I left the hospital, my mother called me one day and told me about a uh, position called a pharmaceutical sales rep. Mm -hmm. And they were going through a massive expansion. And all I remember her saying was, you know, you get a company car, get to wear suits, get to work from home. Nice. So I'm like, hey, I can do that. I can definitely do that. Right. So I got this job as a pharmaceutical sales rep. Didn't even really know what it was back then. You know, uh, a lot of people know about it now. We go in and teach doctors about drugs um, that they prescribe. Um, and so from there, I um, started saving up my bonus checks and building a recording studio. And along the way of building this recording studio, I was buying a piece of equipment uh, from a, a guy who's one of my best friends now named Jeff. And it just so happens that a couple years after I met Jeff, he had a studio too. Um, he just asked me, did I trade in the stock market? And uh, I was like, you know, I don't trade in the stock market. I don't know anything about the stock market. And, and quite frankly, I'm not interested in the stock market. Right, right. That's probably about, yeah, about 17 years ago. Because I had my studio going. That was my passion. I put out uh, a book. I quit corporate America. I put a book out how I quit my $100,000 a year job uh, to inspire and encourage people to go after their passions and their dreams. So I kind of became known as this person who could teach you how to, you know, be an entrepreneur and build uh, a business around your passions. Mm -hmm. So I really had no interest in the stock market at that time. But uh, Jeff stayed on me for two years until he just wore me down. And what he was saying was making sense. Yeah. This is making sense. Like, you know, everything goes to the stock market. You can't be a real businessman if you don't know how the stock market works. Right, right. And so um, I'm giving you the short version, but that's how I got involved in the stock market. And uh, I love it. Uh, I love I got, it, JR. Yeah. Actually, and this is this is Black Wall Street Today. I'm your host, Blair Durham. We're here with JR Fenwick, who is the CEO of Flip That Stock. Let me ask you, JR, I want to kind of dive right in. What are some of the myths associated with the stock market? Obviously, 17 years, you've, you've learned a ton, right? What oh, are yeah. some of those some of those myths? Yeah, I, I hear it all. Um, the, the, here are the top probably four or five. First one is you got to be rich. You, you, you got to be rich. That, that, that's a rich people. And that's well, not true? No, it's not true. I mean, maybe <laughs> think about this. A lot of people got rich because they got in the stock market. Right. Okay. Okay. And so entrepreneurship plus the stock market is a perfect combination. Look at all the wealthiest people in the world. If you take Jeff Bezos, who's the founder of uh, Amazon, right? Yes. He started this little company called Amazon. As it grew, he got stock ownership. It's the stock ownership in the company that makes him the wealthiest man in the world. Uh, hmm. What about uh, Bill Gates? Started this little company called Microsoft in his garage, grew it, grew it, grew it, became one of the wealthiest men in the world, 
uh, well, they don't pay him $50 billion a year. It's because of the stock ownership in his company. Let's take this guy, Steve Jobs, who started Apple. Same thing. Started in his garage, built it up, got stock ownership. Elon Musk of Tesla started this company, got stock ownership. That's where the wealth is. Even a shining black example is Kathy Hughes, Kathy Hughes. owner of Radio One and TV One. All right. Started this company and then she took the company public. That's where the wealth comes from. So you don't have to start off wealthy. You just get in the game. So that's one thing. Another one is uh, you got to have a degree. You got to have a certificate. You got to have a license to, to, to get in the stock market. Stop it. No, you don't. You don't have to have any of that to so buy. You don't need a license. Yourself. Okay. No license. No certificate. No degree. Now, if you're out here and you're giving people stock advice, as an advisor and stuff like that yeah you need to get licensed but if you're doing it for yourself you don't have to have any license you don't even have to have a degree you know you do have to be educated on the market but you don't have to have a degree another one I hear this wrong ooh this is gambling you're gambling when you go in the market hmm. Hmm. well let's I'll call myself a common sense person if 90 plus percent of wealthy people are in the stock market in some way shape or form are they just excessive gamblers or do they know something we don't know See, it's not gambling. You control your risk when you go into the market, but people don't know that. You can say exactly what I, you can say I'm willing to risk $20. If the stock doesn't do what I want it to do, then you can put certain measures in there that are automated to sell that stock for you and get you out of it. A lot of people don't know this. And then, the, uh, and then another one that I hear all the time, it's just too complicated. This thing, it just, it just looks. And that's too not true, JR. It's not too complicated. It is not true. It is not. It's not complicated. When it's taught in the right fashion. And I learned that I have this talent for teaching it mainly because of my health background. And I had to learn a lot of complex information mm-hmm. and then go teach it to the doctors. And the doctors don't want me coming in there talking about chemical structures, right? Mm-hmm. You know, what does the drug do? You know, what are the side effects? How many times do they take it a day? Stuff. So we had to learn all this and simplify it. So everything I do now, uh, I just look at it. And I look at what some of these people who I'd meet at these conferences were trading, investing in stocks. They don't have no pre-med degree from Hampton University. They ain't smarter than me. So I'm like, oh, no, no. It's, wow. it's the desire. It's the desire. That's what it gets down to. Your desire and your priority to learn it. You're listening to so. Black Wall Street today with Blair Durham. I'm here with CEO of Flip That Stock, Mr. J.R. Fenwick. I've got to ask you this, J.R., what is the one thing that you learned that you couldn't believe after learning about how the stock market works? Well, I hope you, I hope your audience is sitting down because when I learned this, I almost dialed 911. And I learned that we all understand the concept of you can buy a stock low and sell it high and make a profit. Right. And first of all, let me just say, right, so all the stock is is a share of ownership, a piece of ownership in a company. Mm -hmm. So let's say that piece of ownership, um, you pay $20 Mm -hmm. per share. Mm -hmm. And let's say that, and let's say it goes up to $25. Okay, well, you made $5 per share. All right? If you have 100 shares, you just take five times 100 and you made 500 bucks. Right. But did did you know that you could also make money if that stock went from $25 down to $20. So you can make money when a stock goes up and you can make money when a stock goes down, but nobody talks about that on TV. All you hear on TV is, oh my God, the stock market's crashing. 
But behind the curtains, there's people like me saying, crash, baby, crash. Hmm. Because there's a, a technique of doing something called shorting a stock that very few people know about. Everybody on Wall Street knows about it. And everybody does it every single day. Shorting a stock. And uh, shorting a stock. And that's where you make money when a stock goes down in value. And there's steps to learning it, just like there's steps to learning anything else. But once you learn it, um, now you have the opportunity to make money when a stock goes up and when a stock comes down. I want to apologize uh, to the listeners. We've got some people wanting to call in, but we've already got you calling in, and so we can't take any calls. I apologize. If you want to post a question on uh, Black Wall Street today on Facebook, please post a question there. I will get the answer for you and respond. How's that? Let me ask this. We've got two minutes, JR. What's the difference between investing and trading? Great question. Real quickly, uh, investing is where you buy and hold a stock for uh, one year or longer. You're looking to buy low, sell high in the future, college tuition, retirement, vacation, something like that. Trading is where you buy and sell over a short period of time. It could be months, weeks, days, minutes, hours, even seconds. Right. You're in it to make right right now money. Okay. So those are the difference. It's a big difference. Huge. And then what would you say is the number one reason people actually lose money in the stock market? The number one reason people lose money is because they just focus on the money instead of focusing on a three-step process of learn, practice, do. Imagine if you got in your car and you didn't know how to drive your car, but all you focused on was, hey, I want to drive uh, my car to the park and show all my friends my car. But you didn't know the process of driving. And that's what people do. They just focus on the money. No, that's backwards. Focus on the education. Focus on the practice. That gets you to the doing. So it's a three-step process. Three steps. I got it. Hey, listen, JR, I'm looking forward to having you back on the show on a recurring basis. I want to thank you so much. Stay with us online at Black Wall Street Today on Facebook and Black Wall Street Today on Instagram. And then follow us on Twitter as well at BWS Today. We look forward to talking again next week. Have a wonderful week.